Welcome back to the program for the majority of the boomer generation and generations that preceded it. Work was mostly an obligation, a way of earning one's way in the world, a way of paying for the perceived American dream. Today that's changed. Today work itself is often the object. For millennials, the work must have purpose. It must be fulfilling in its own right, and the efforts, even if they're just a small part, must contribute to something bigger than ourselves. Today, rather than the artificial construct of work-life balance, work and life are merging into a seamless, self-actualized effort. This is not just a psychological obligation. In fact, this direction, coupled with the growing information economy, is changing the very fabric of economic exchange. It's creating what my guest Aaron Hurst calls the purpose economy. Aaron Hurst is the founder and president of the Taproot Foundation, a nonprofit organization building a national pro bono marketplace. He's been recognized as a social innovator by the Aspen Institute, the Social Venture Network, Fast Company, and the Commonwealth Club. And it is my pleasure to welcome Aaron Hurst here to talk about the purpose economy. Uh, your desire for impact, personal growth, and community is changing the world. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. What a great introduction. I couldn't have said any of that better. <laughs> Thank you. Great to have you here. This idea of looking for purpose in work, is this something that is a luxury? I mean, is it something that if we put it on, you know, a, the equivalent of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that only those in the upper echelons of the economic ladder really can afford to do? Or is this something that you think is filtering into every aspect of work and society today? Well, I think there's a couple different answers to that. One is, you know, the research really shows that the people who find purpose at work is not correlated with socioeconomic class. So the, the wealthy are no more likely to have purpose at work than those who are not. So from that standpoint, it's absolutely not a luxury. Um, you know, you look at uh, Viktor Frankl, who I think is one of the most famous writers on this topic, and he talks about how purpose is what got him through um, his time in a concentration camp uh, during World War II. Um, and clearly, if he found purpose uh, at a concentration camp, uh, that pretty clearly states that our purpose isn't a luxury. Talk a little about where the tipping point has been with respect to the economy. When did this start to become something that f was fundamentally changing economic exchange? Yeah, I mean, I think as you noted earlier, the millennial generation really is the generation that's tipping this. And right now, millennials are split between, you know, high school, college, and, you know, early career. But uh, by, you know, 10 years from now, 75% of the workforce will be millennials. And when you have that, you have an incredible tipping point in the workforce, but also those people are consumers, and they're going to be the ones spending money on uh goods and services. And at that point, it'll be undeniable. There's no way companies will be able to thrive if it's not providing jobs with purpose and creating products and services that fuel that, that fundamental need for purpose in our lives. Talk a little bit about how we define purpose, because one of the points that you make repeatedly is the degree yeah. to which people confuse the idea of purpose with a cause. And they're two very different things. That's absolutely right. And it's such a major barrier for a lot of people because they think uh, purpose is about finding your cause, that you're going to suddenly realize that you should be working in education or healthcare or with puppies or whatever the cause is. And I know a lot of people who have hundreds of causes in their lives and have no sense of purpose, and a lot of people who have purpose um, but no sense of cause. Because at the end of the day, what creates purpose is relationships, which you can really have in any context and the quality of those relationships. It's about personal growth and challenging yourself, leaning into your fear. 
And it's about doing something greater than yourself. But doing something greater than yourself doesn't have to mean that you're working on a cause. Uh, doing something greater than yourself uh, can simply mean helping the neighbor. It can be helping a coworker. It can be working on a product or a service that you know makes someone's life a little bit better. So it's a much more, I think, pedestrian, but therefore much more accessible notion than these romantic notions of, you know, purpose being about a cause. One of the things that it goes hand in hand with as you talk about it is the whole changing nature of the workplace today, this move away from the command and control leadership model. Talk about that nexus. Yeah, it's so interesting. That was really the, you know, what I grew up in um, work-wise as a sort of command and control, and there was a lot of experimentation around how to modify that. But we're now seeing, especially as millennials are creating their own companies, uh, they're creating an entirely different model that's much flatter, um, and it resembles in many ways, and uh, baby boomers will be able to relate to this, I think, well, is it resembles a lot more community organizing um, of the 60s and 70s, um, where it's about leaders who are able to have folks and uh, find purpose in their work and who are actually able to lead from behind instead of in front and are really fueling that need for purpose in their employees. And it's pretty disruptive. And I think a lot of boomers um, and older leaders are struggling with that change. And I was just talking to a company, and they said that their executives were saying, what can we do to bring in someone to train our millennials to stop acting like this? <laughs> and unfortunately, that's not the solution. Um, not only is that not possible, but it's also not desirable. So I think millennials uh, really got you know, have this going the right way. It's not only disruptive within the context of the traditional workplace, it is disruptive in the nature of businesses themselves. If one looks at the kind of businesses that millennials are starting, they're businesses that are consistent with all of these things. That's right. I mean, you look at, you know, the sharing economy, um, which has been written about a lot, and how instead of owning things, we're looking at how do we share assets, because we don't need to own a car for all the times we're not using it, and when we're away from our homes, we can share those. Um, we're starting to look to businesses that enable us, instead of buying mass-produced products, you know, looking at how do we enable craftspeople uh, to be able to create products and sell them on sites like Etsy um, or sell their services on sites like Zarly. Uh, so we're seeing some major, some major shifts. And you also see the, uh, the fastest-growing profession in the U.S. right now is home health care aids because we're also finding that these new generations is that Women are almost entirely integrated into the workplace, and we're now having to outsource a lot of the functions that are in the family and creating a tremendous number of purpose-rich jobs. Are there a significant percentage of the population that just doesn't get this, doesn't understand it, of, across all socioeconomic categories? And given that, given that we're going to have a significant number of people that approach work in the way we're talking about and a significant number that don't get it, what kind of conflicts and clashes will that set up in the future? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's right. And the, it's interesting, the research, I just wrote a piece on this for the Washington Post, is that there's basically three ways people look at work. And some see it as just about money. Some see it about status and uh, their identity. And others see it as a calling or around purpose. And there is going to be clashes, but the people who see it as purpose are the best performers and have the highest well-being. And I think we as a society need to find a way to get more and more people to see that way. And what's fascinating, this new research out of the University of Michigan points to the fact that those that actually see work as just about money, um, the fundamental issue, they didn't have a good relationship with their mother. <laughs> and that they found actually that um, if people had a strong relationship with their mother, there is almost no chance that they would grow up with just an orientation to work as money. So 
I think some really interesting opportunities to really strengthen society by understanding the science. How are old line traditional companies making the transition to this kind of a world? And talk about ones you've seen that have been successful in doing it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of companies that are successful doing it. It's really hard. Um, and you see that a lot of, you know, whenever you have these major economic shifts, I mean, you saw a lot of companies who went into the information economy that just took way too long to adapt, like most of Detroit. Um, and the companies that are really going to thrive are the ones that see this change and start to really invest in training their managers uh, to work with their teams around purpose and are starting to use diagnostics like ours um, at imperative.com to really understand the needs of their employees, but then also starting to segment and think about their customers in terms of purpose. Uh, a couple of companies I think have done this you know, well. I mean, one is BMW in Germany, who's really shifted a lot of their, you know, the way they approach their consumers. Um, you look at, you know, companies like Mozilla, uh, that's done an amazing job with their, with their teams. But I think we're just starting to see this because it's such a shift for these larger companies to make. Um, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. One of the things you talk about is the change to an information-based economy, to a knowledge-based economy, has really been a key element in this shift. Talk about how that's happened. Yeah, so I think it was, you know, we were an industrial economy and we became an information economy in the 60s. And uh, that created so many changes in professions and industries, et cetera. But this information economy is a huge part of what's enabling this new purpose economy because uh, the technologies that are being created are enabling us to really, once again, instead of having technology drive us and machines drive us, it's actually enabling us to use them to increase our well-being, uh, enable us to create relationships in new ways, to be able to find new markets for our products. Uh, so this technology is finally, I think, you know, becoming the servant of man instead of the other way around. How is this playing out differently in the service part of the economy today? I think it's, uh, I mean, I think we continue to have a challenge with a lot of service jobs uh, in this economy. But we're finding these new uh, models of job crafting where, people are really able to reshape these service jobs uh, around which it makes purpose for them. It has huge potential for making those service jobs much richer in purpose for people. But we have a long way to go, and you know, I'm the first to advocate for the fact that we really need to look at you know, minimum wage issues and livable wages for people working, um, especially in the entry levels in the service industry, because uh, we've really created an unsustainable economic model there. Is this something when we look at the purpose economy and, and the value of it, is it something that we can measure in terms of economic output? Are there metrics that we can apply to how well or, or not well a company is doing with respect to respecting this idea of purpose? We're starting to. I mean, you're starting to see it around companies and even governments that are starting to measure well-being, um, well-being of their employees, well-being of citizens, um, we're starting to see some metrics around uh, people's willingness to buy certain products or services based on their perception of a company and what it provides to them. So I'd say we have the beginnings of measurement, but we're probably still, you know, we're in a very nascent stage, and I think it won't be for another five or ten years before we start seeing real norms around measurement. And how do you see that evolving? How do you see a framework developing to be able to measure these things? Well, I think it's going to be driven by market pressure because the companies that are investing in this want to attract the right employees and they need to find ways to measure and say that they're the best employer when it comes to purpose. And they're starting to make the investments to figure out 
how do they show off, if you will, um, their superior workplace. Um, so I think you're going to see natural corporate investment that way. Um, you know, and the same thing on the retail side. I think a lot of advertisers are looking at, you know, how do we measure the impact of different approaches, and they're wanting to be able to make the case. So I think you're going to see natural business pressure to be able to have metrics so that uh, they can compete based on them. There's an interesting dichotomy that seems to go on in this. On the one hand, there is an element to, to purpose that is very locally based and locally driven. You used community organizing as an example before. Yeah. And yet it also works seamlessly within the context of a global economy. Talk about yep. those two things kind of rubbing up against each other. No, and rubbing up against each other is a great way to describe it. I think that at some level, the globalization has, you know, separated a lot of people and broken down the community, but we're now able to increasingly, you know, create products and services locally. So I think at some level, there's like a, a move back, you know, away from globalization to more localization that, that frankly, globalization enabled. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of people are waking up to a lot of the issues going on around the world and are much more, you know, global citizens. And as a result, uh, they're really seeing, uh, building a lot more empathy and compassion for the world and seeing that the impact of their consumption and work um, has a real ripple effect around the world. And that's driving, I think, a lot of millennial change is just taking more ownership of that. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's an important piece. And I, I think it's really encouraging to me to see how much people are traveling and starting to really get to know other parts of the world, uh, becoming real global citizens. What do we learn from looking at the industries that have been arguably the slowest to really adapt to all of this? Education, healthcare, finance. Yeah. What do we learn by looking at that? Well, I think there's two things. I think one is there is tremendous need for change because most of those industries are still operating in the, you know, the industrial economy in a lot of ways, especially education. And the biggest challenge I see in talking to innovators is that we've created so much regulation um, as a government uh, of these industries that it's actually really hard to innovate to optimize purpose for people because they're so concerned about protecting people. And what a lot of these innovators are doing is they're actually going overseas to do their innovation and then trying to use that as proof points to change the regulations in the U.S. So I think the, the industries that are going to change the slowest are the ones that are most regulated. Um, and that's why we're seeing the actual innovation happening much more in the workplace and in retail in other less uh, uh, regulated industries. So it's unfortunate. I think the government's out to protect people, and I'm a huge fan of that role. But it's hard in these moments of innovation because a lot of those uh, rules no longer apply to these new models. And you see that with Airbnb, who is struggling to really make its business work because of all the regulations about, you know, what, it, what constitutes a hotel and where can someone stay and is it appropriate for someone to rent out a room in their home uh, a lot of these questions really are rubbing up against, you know, old rules that were created to protect people from another era. Which really raises the question, what role public policy has in this shift that we're talking about? It has a huge role, and I don't honestly have a full answer to that. I mean, you look at the role it had to play um, in the move from an industrial to the information economy and all the new government agencies that were necessary to manage the you know, information, intellectual property, a lot of these things that were key to the information economy. Uh, and the purpose economy, we're going to see a lot more human vulnerability, and, which is a wonderful thing, but it also requires making sure we create the right protections for people with that increased vulnerability. And that's going to be a real challenge for the government. If they overstep it, they're actually going to crush 
I think this evolution. And if they do it right, they're really going to create an environment which increases a sense of safety and enables people to be more human and not have to sort of withdraw into their shells. It's interesting because the impulse, the public policy impulse among people that seem to be committed to this is to get the government out of the way. That's why I think we see the libertarian impulse in a lot of these millennials, because it addresses exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the, it's when you have a moment of change, you see that so much of the red tape is the challenge. I think, that, I think on the flip side, a lot of the people leading this are very progressive politically and also see how important regulation has been to protecting labor and protecting us as borrowers and buyers. Um, so I think there's a real tension there because we both want the regulation. We've seen the abuses of the past, but at the same time, we don't want what we're doing to be regulated. And I think that's a real tension that's going to have to be resolved. Are we going to see among the companies that are really getting out ahead of this, and you mentioned many of them in the book, a kind of first mover advantage within the purpose economy that grows out of their commitment to purpose? Yeah, and I think that there's a tremendous competitive advantage. I think this is where, and you see this already a lot in uh, Silicon Valley and other places, that the places that are able to create these environments are the ones that are attracting the talent. And increasingly, talent is the name of the game. So it is the real, it is the key to, to success. And, you know, I always point to Detroit because Detroit is a classic case study of a city with a set of industries that was so full of hubris that it didn't uh, realize the world was changing. And the Japanese were able to step in and like really um, eat our lunch. And I think the same thing is going to happen to companies that don't realize this change is happening. In many ways, this is the ideal model for nonprofits. And certainly a lot of these ideas yep. came out of the nonprofit world. But even some of the nonprofits are not really getting it in terms of purpose versus cause. Oh, that's so true. And what I, I worked for about 12 years in the nonprofit sector. And I think what ends up happening is because we are so committed to you know our cause as a nonprofit that we don't realize that that's not enough to feed our teams, um, that they actually need purpose in their day-to-day jobs. And if you're a you know, mid to large size nonprofit and you've got finance folks and HR folks and marketing folks, they're not on the front lines, you know, doing social services. And it's not enough just to abstractly know that that's happening within the organization. They need to really celebrate their own purpose, uh, which really comes more out of their craft than it does out of the organizational purpose. So there's a real need for nonprofits to realize that just because they are focused on a cause does not mean their employees are getting purpose. What do you think the media is missing in the way it covers this transition? Uh, you know, I think a lot of it's just looking at spot issues, um, looking at these, uh, not seeing the connected dots between all these changes, I think is one. The uh, second one would be that uh, there's a real tendency to look for uh, outliers or where this isn't working and creating fear in the public. Uh, you can see that in a lot of recent coverage of, you know, where sharing has gone awry. Uh, but the actual instances of problems are really incredibly low. Um, but the media tends to sensationalize the occasional hiccup um, and build fear instead of, I think, really building a sense of uh, inspiration. Uh, I think the other thing is to see it as an economic power. I think a lot of this is still seen as nice to have and do good, and they're not seeing actually that it's a business imperative and starting to really write about this from a business point of view. Oftentimes it gets covered as a technology story when we hear things about Air- Airbnb or Kickstarter or Uber or any of these companies. We could go on and on. It's often covered as a technology story as opposed to the broader impact that it's having 
on economic exchange. That's right. I mean, it's much more of a social phenomenon that technology is enabling. And in the book, I read about how this is an easy thing to to be confused by, and then we had the same thing happen earlier when we went from an industrial to information economy. You know, some of the earliest information economy companies like Hewlett Packard or IBM looked like manufacturers. I mean, they were creating typewriters, they were creating calculators, um, computers, and the majority of their employee base were manufacturing, but those are clearly information economy companies. And I think similarly right now, um, you know, the core of a lot of these companies, they're leveraging the best practices of the last economy and moving into the new one. And it's really important to distinguish that an Airbnb is very different than a Microsoft. Tell us a little bit about Taproot and what that is. Yeah, so Taproot is an organization I started in 2001 to ensure that all nonprofits have access to marketing, technology, HR, and other sort of key functions that they often can't afford, and built a movement around the globe for business professionals to set aside some of their time to provide their services to those who can't afford them. And we scaled it to about a $15 billion marketplace for pro bono services. And what I realized was that when we talked to people who did pro bono, they said, this was the greatest experience of their career. And that was really rewarding. But we realized was that that also means there's a huge opportunity here because the rest of work needs to feel more like pro bono work. And that's why I left Taproot last year and started Imperative, a new company, where we're really looking at how do we make all work feel like pro bono work? Because we believe that it's not only possible, but necessary. One of the things you talk about is that what's now emerging in this regard are really tastemakers in this purpose economy that set the yep. parameters for what you're saying. Talk a little about that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like any change, it comes through an adoption curve uh, that's been well studied, starting in the agrarian economy with farmers. And you have the early folks that, you know, try things, and then uh, you then get early adopters who start to build broader taste for it in society, and then it goes to the mainstream. And I think the best example of that is Whole Foods. And when I grew up, when you went to a health food store, it smelled terrible, the food looked terrible. You had to be so committed to the goal of uh, health and sustainability to buy anything, let alone like even walk into one of those stores. And you look now at Whole Foods, which has over you know, the last uh, two decades totally changed our perception around food and around healthy food and organic food. Uh, and really is 180 degrees. You go to a Whole Foods now and it's like the most gorgeous, most uh, delectable food you can find in a grocery store. And it's uh, really created a whole uh, upper middle class uh, change in eating habits, which now is starting to filter into the mainstream. And we're starting to see a lot of the products sold at Whole Foods now making it into traditional grocery stores. So it's a whole evolutionary process from that stinky health food store to Whole Foods (laughs) to the local Safeway. Which raises the other issue of the role that style and design specifically play in the emergence of this purpose economy. Yeah, no, I think it's right. And you always, it's, it's always a question of finding a way to make uh, change sexy and to make it something that uh, is really delightful and enjoyable and something you want to show off. Um, and that's really how you create those sort of taste changes. And that's why, you know, a company like Tesla is doing so well is they've created a car that's not just environmentally much better, but it's a gorgeous car. Um, and people really want to be associated with that kind of high-level design. And the people that are really creating change are finding ways to make, uh, you know, make the change come along with beautiful design. Aaron Hurst, the book is The Purpose Economy. Aaron, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 